0: Cause I'm doing just find out, to out, out, to out hello this is Matt with note to note a podcast about books uh, so this is the inaugural episode the pilot and it's just gonna be real soft as we get into this. The way the podcast is shaped is I will give a five minute blubber fest about some book that I've read, and then I'll read a randomly chosen passage, and then I'll tell you some of my notes of my favorite passages, nice and quick. So the first book is called lost children archive by valeria Luiselli, and that's all you need to know here comes the five minutes i have my beautiful person next to me who will set it up and uh, five minutes go so valeria is someone who I admire greatly, I read, tell me how it ends about her work with uh, immigrant children in Long Island, as well as her book, The Story of My Teeth, which is very Borgesian and really full of literary factoids. If you are into books, it's one of those a real reader's reader kind of book, but Lost Children Archive is kind of a mix between those two. In that, the novel follows a archivist married to a sound archivist as they kind of diverge professionally from what they both are looking for, uh, while seemingly trying to keep their family together. Um, it reminds me a lot of like when your zipper gets undone halfway up your coat and you have to try and get it back down never feels right and you almost have to unzip the whole thing to get it back on track but this book deals a lot with the refugee crisis at the southern border of the united states um the, I would say the main character gets really interested in uh, those children and their stories and um, the kind of classic story of traveling for a better life. The The title of this book, Lost Children Archive, is almost a play on, on this idea of the lost children crusade where it's a it's kind of a story that is uh runs through this book of a bunch of kids sent by their parents um on a crusade with no money and no food Uh, but they're just sent in, in medieval times across europe i think if i remember right um to try and persuade others to convert to i think christianity so there's this idea of innocence that only children can have and i think what she does really well is that um, the innocence is often paired with a courage that we forget kids have because the second part the second kind of echoing mythology is this story of La Bestia, which is the name of the train that uh, takes children from, I think, Central America through Mexico and into the United States, and it's and it's this story that the narrator tells her children as they travel across the United States, um, but. It's this myth of these this kind of bloodless tribe of children who come together in their communal plight and have to ride this train through countries they don't know, led by or softly protected by this adult who they rarely speak to and they have no hope really other than what they've been told by others and I I don't know there's something about how a child believes the story of a future that I think is really impressive Um, but this book Deals also with the kind of love loss that happens when two people start making spaces for themselves outside of each other. Uh, the, the love story between the narrator and her husband is pretty great. They started their relationship working together, trying to document all the languages in New York city. I think that's such a great idea, but then after that project is finished and the money's run out, uh, she gets interested in in the children, and he gets interested in trying to document sounds of uh, Native American, um, basically ghosts. He's really interested in Geronimo. All right, so that's five minutes. We got you got some idea of what's going on. Now we're going to go to the segment where I flip through the book. This is a game my dad used to play with me. You flip through a book and someone else from the outside world says win, and then uh, my thumb will stop on a page, and I'll read that page for you. Okay, here's the win. Okay. The first elegy. Mouths open to the sky, they sleep boys girls lips chapped cheeks cracked for the wind whips day and night they occupy the entire space there stiff but warm lined up like new corpses along the metal roof of the train gondola from behind the rim of his blue cap the man in charge counts them six children seven minus one the train advances slowly along tracks parallel to an iron wall beyond on both sides of the wall the desert stretches out identical above the swart night is still so that the first elegy is a part of it's actually i think the first chapter of the 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 myth of the children on, on the train which is which is pretty cool but that that line in there six children seven minus one that one actually got me thinking about math because every number is a story six can be you can just think of six but it's also seven minus one and the context of that in the story is that there were seven children and then one died so there are six now and i just i like that richness To the idea of numbers because they're so usually so abstract, but I don't know, there's a history there. Okay, well, we've now reached the final part where I read a little bit of my notes. These were done about a month ago, but uh, I said. why did it take so long for me to read this? I love this book. It's a great construction of a novel. It reminds me of Markson or Galliano or Robeson. And there's a lot of small chapters, and each of them are titled or documented. Um, OK, so one thing I really loved is that the narrator marks her books, which is something that I do and which I think is fitting for this podcast since it's all about the notes I took on books and the fact that it's an archive, the lost, well, it's not even the, it's just lost children archive. So here's a quote from the book. I stay up on the porch outside the cottage, reading Sontag's journal, Sontag, Sontag, Uh, never knew. My arms and legs, a feast for the mosquitoes. Above my head, beetles smack their stubborn echo skeletons against the single light bulb Oh, that's good. White moths spiral up around its halo and then plummet down. A small spider, spider spins, a trap in the intersection of a beam and a column. And in the distance, a redeeming constellation of fireflies. Intermittent, landscapes, the dark immensity beyond the rectangle of the porch. I don't keep a journal. My journals are the things I underline in books. I would never lend a book to anyone after having read it. I underlined too much, sometimes entire pages, sometimes with double underline. My husband and I once read this copy of Sontag's journals together. We had just met. Both of us underlined entire passages of it enthusiastically, almost feverishly. We read out loud, taking turns, opening pages as if consulting an oracle, legs naked and intertwined on a twin bed. I suppose that words, timely and arranged in the right order, produce an afterglow. When you read words like that in a book, beautiful words, a powerful but fleeting emotion ensues. And you also know that soon it'll all be gone. The concepts you just grasped and the emotion it produced. Then comes a need to possess that strange, ephemeral afterglow and to hold on to that emotion. So you reread, underline, and perhaps even memorize and transcribe the words somewhere in a notebook, on a napkin, on your hand. In our copy of Sontag's journals, underlined once, twice, sometimes boxed in and marked at the margins. One of the main social functions of a journal or diary is precisely to be read furtively by other people, the people like parents and lovers about whom one has been cruelly honest only in the journal. In a time hollowed out by decorum, one must school oneself in spontaneity. 1831, Hegel died. We sit in this rat hole on our asses growing eminent and middle aged. Moral bookkeeping requires a settling of accounts. In marriage, I've suffered a certain loss of personality. At first the loss was pleasant, easy. Marriage is based on the principle of inertia. The sky as seen in the city is negative where the buildings are not. The parting was vague because the separation still seems unreal. This last line is underlined in pencil, then circled in black and also flagged in the margin with an exclamation mark. Was it me or him who underlined it? I don't remember. I do remember though, that when I read Sontag for the first time, just like the first time I read Hannah Ardent, Emily Dickinson and Pascal, I kept having those sudden, subtle, and possibly microchemical raptures, little lights flickering deep inside the brain tissue that some people experience when they finally find words for a very simple and yet till then utterly unspeakable feeling. When someone else's words enter your consciousness like that, they become small conceptual light marks. They're not necessarily illuminating. A match struck a light in a dark hallway the lit tip of a cigarette smoked in bed at midnight, embers in a dying chimney. None of these things has enough light of its own to reveal anything. Neither do anyone's words. But sometimes a little light can make you aware of the dark, unknown space that surrounds it, of the enormous ignorance that envelops everything we think we know, and that recognition and coming to terms with darkness is more valuable than all the factual knowledge we may ever accumulate. Rereading passages underlined in this copy of the Sontag journals, finding them once again powerful years later and re-underlining some, especially the meditations around marriage. I realize that everything I'm reading was written in 1957 or 1958. I count with my fingers. Sontag was only 24 then, nine years younger than I am now. I am suddenly embarrassed, like I've been caught laughing at a joke before the punchline or of clapped between movements at a concert. So I skip to 1963 when Sontag has turned 30 something, is finally divorced, and maybe has more clarity about things present and future. I'm too tired to read on. I mark the page, close the book, turn off the porch light, mob with beetles and moths, and head to bed.